Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast, this is your host Paul, and this is episode 144. This episode is entitled, Why Fire Makes Us Human. Well everyone, I'm finally back at the microphone after a long break away overseas with my wife on a wonderful holiday to the UK, Ireland and Paris. We had a great time. A little cold in Scotland, but what a glorious place. Anyway, I'm back at the microphone and for those of you who listen to the Mysteries Abound podcast, you know that I've managed to do one of those. So it's Origin's turn. Our first story this week comes from the www.guardian.co.uk website and it's a story that takes the term down in the mouth to a whole new level. And this article is written by Paul Templer. There was no transition at all, no sense of approaching danger. It was as if I had suddenly gone blind and deaf. Experience. I was swallowed by a hippo. The hippo who tried to kill me wasn't a stranger. He and I had met before a number of times. I was 27 and owned a business taking clients down the Zambezi River near Victoria Falls. I had been watching this stretch of river for years and the grouchy old two-ton bull had carried out the occasional half-hearted attack. I learned to avoid him Hippos are territorial, and I knew where he was most likely to be at any given time. That day I'd taken clients out with three apprentice guides, Mike, Ben and Evans, all in kayaks. We were near the end of the tour, the light was softening, and we were taking in the tranquillity. The solid whack I felt behind me took me by surprise. I turned just in time to see Evans, who had been flung out of his boat, flying through the air. His boat, with his two clients still in it, had been lifted out of the water on the back of the huge bull hippo. 
There was a cluster of rocks nearby and I yelled at the nearest apprentice to guide everyone there to safety. Then I turned my boat and paddled furiously towards Evans. I reached over to grab his outstretched hand, but as our fingers were about to touch, I was engulfed in darkness. There was no transition at all, no sense of approaching danger. It was as if I had suddenly gone blind and deaf. I was aware that my legs were surrounded by water, but my top half was almost dry. I seemed to be trapped in something slimy. There was a terrible sulphurous smell, like rotten eggs, and a tremendous pressure against my chest. My arms were trapped, but I managed to free one hand and feel around. My palm passed through the wiry bristles of the hippo's snout. It was only then that I realised I was underwater, trapped up to my waist in his mouth. I wriggled as hard as I could, and in the few seconds for which he opened his jaws, I managed to escape. I swam towards Evans, but the hippo struck again, dragging me back under the surface. I'd never heard of a hippo attacking repeatedly like this, but he clearly wanted me dead. Hippos' mouths have huge tusks, slicing incisors, and a bunch of smaller chewing teeth. It felt as if the bull was making full use of the whole lot as he mauled me. A doctor later counted almost 40 puncture wounds and bite marks on my body. The bull simply went berserk, throwing me into the air and catching me again, shaking me like a dog with a doll. Then he went down again, right to the bottom, and everything went still. I remember looking up through ten feet of water at the green and yellow light playing on the surface and wondering which one of us could hold his breath the longest. Blood rose from my body in clouds, and a sense of resignation overwhelmed me. I've no idea how long we stayed under. Time passes very slowly when you're in a hippo's mouth. The hippo lurched suddenly for the surface, spitting me out as it rose. Mike was still waiting for me in his kayak and managed to paddle me to safety. I was a mess. My left arm was crushed to a pulp. Blood poured from the wounds in my chest and when he examined my back, Mike discovered a wound so savage that my lung was visible. Luckily, he knew first aid and was able to seal the wounds in my chest with the wrapper from a tray of snacks, which almost certainly stopped my lungs from collapsing and saved my life. By chance a medical team was nearby on an emergency drill and with their help I stayed alive long enough to reach a hospital with a surgeon. He warned me he would probably have to take off both my arms and the bottom of my injured leg. In the end I only lost my left arm. They managed to patch up the rest. Evan's body was found down the river two days later. Attempts were made to find and kill the rogue hippo, but he seemed to have gone into hiding. I'm convinced, though, that I met him one more time. Two years later, I led an expedition down the Zambezi, and as we drifted past the stretch where the attack had taken place, a huge hippo lurched out of the water next to my canoe. I screamed so loudly that those with me said they'd never heard anything like it. He dived back under and was never seen again. I'd bet my life savings it was the same hippo determined to have the final word.
In April, National Geographic News published a story about the letter in which the scientist Francis Crick described DNA to his 12-year-old son. In 1962, Crick was awarded a Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA, along with fellow scientists James Watson and Morris Wilkins. Several people posted comments about our story that noted one name was missing from the Nobel roster. Rosalind Franklin, a British biophysicist who also studied DNA. Her data were critical to Crick and Watson's work. But it turned out that Franklin would not have been eligible for the prize. She had passed away four years before Watson, Crick and Wilkins received the prize and the Nobel is never awarded posthumously. But even if she had been alive, she may still have been overlooked. Like many women scientists, Franklin was robbed of recognition throughout her career. She was not the first woman to have endured indignities in the male-dominated world of science. But Franklin's case is especially egregious, said Ruth Lewinsheim, a retired chemistry professor at Sacramento City College, who has written on women in science. Over the centuries, female researchers have had to work as volunteer faculty members, seen credit for significant discoveries they've made assigned to male colleagues and been written out of textbooks. They typically had paltry resources and fought uphill battles to achieve what they did, only to have the credit attributed to their husbands or male colleagues, said Anne Lincoln, a sociologist at the Southern Methodist University in Texas who studies biases against women in the sciences. Today's women scientists believe that attitudes have changed, said Laura Hoops at Pomona College in California, who had written extensively on women in the sciences until it hits them in the face. Bias against female scientists is less overt, but it has not gone away. Here are six female researchers who did groundbreaking work and whose names are likely unfamiliar for one reason, because they are women. From the news.nationalgeographic.com website, an article by Jane J. Lee. Six women scientists who were snubbed due to sexism. Jocelyn Bell Burnell Born in Northern Ireland in 1943, Jocelyn Bell Burnell discovered pulsars in 1967 while still a graduate student in radio astronomy at Cambridge University in England. Pulsars are the remnants of massive stars that went supernova. Their very existence demonstrates that these giants didn't blow themselves into oblivion. Instead, they left behind small, incredibly dense, rotating stars. Bell Burnell discovered the recurring signals given off by their rotation while analysing data printed out on three miles of paper from a radio telescope she helped to assemble. The finding resulted in a Nobel Prize, but the 1974 award in physics went to Anthony Hewish, Bell Burnell's supervisor, and Martin Ryle, also a radio astronomer at Cambridge University. 
The snub generated a wave of sympathy for Belle Burnell, but in an interview with National Geographic News this month, the astronomer was fairly matter-of-fact. The picture people had at the time of the way that science was done was that there was a senior man, and it was always a man, who had under him a whole load of minions, junior staff, who weren't expected to think, who were only expected to do as he said, explained Belle Burnell, now a visiting astronomy professor at the University of Oxford. But despite the sympathy and her groundbreaking work, Bell Burnell said she was still subject to the prevailing attitudes towards women in academia. I didn't always have research jobs, she said. Many of the positions the astrophysicist was offered in her career were focused on teaching or administrative and management duties. And it was extremely hard combining family and career, Bell Burnell said partly because the university where she worked while pregnant had no provisions for maternity leave. She has since become quite protective of women in academia. Some individual schools may give them support, but Bell Burnell wants a systemic approach to boost the numbers of female researchers. She recently chaired a working group for the Royal Society of Edinburgh, tasked with finding a strategy to boost the number of women in the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics in Scotland. Esther Lederberg Born in 1922 in the Bronx, Esther Lederberg would grow up to lay the groundwork for future discoveries on genetic inheritance in bacteria, gene regulation and genetic recombination. A microbiologist, she is perhaps best known for discovering a virus that infects bacteria, called the Lambda bacteriophage in 1951 while at the University of Wisconsin. Lederberg, along with her first husband, Joshua Lederberg, also developed a way to easily transfer bacterial colonies from one petri dish to another, called replica plating, which enabled the study of antibiotic resistance. The Lederberg method is still in use today. Joshua Lederberg's work on replica plating played a part in his 1958 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine, which he shared with George Beadle and Edward Tatum. She deserved credit for the discovery of lambdaphage, for her work on the F-fertility factor and especially replica plating, wrote Stanley Falco, a retired microbiologist at Stanford University in an email. But she didn't receive it. Lederberg also wasn't treated fairly in terms of her academic standing at Stanford, added Falco, a colleague of Lederberg's who spoke at her memorial service in 2006. She had to fight just to be appointed as a research associate professor, whereas she surely should have been afforded full professorial rank. She was not alone. Women were treated badly in academia in those days. Qian Xiong Wu Born in Liuho, China in 1912, Qian Xiong Wu overturned a law of physics and participated in the development of the atomic bomb. Wu was recruited to Columbia University in the 1940s as part of the Manhattan Project 
and conducted research on radiation detection and uranium enrichment. She stayed in the United States after the war and became known as one of the best experimental physicists of her time, said Nina Byers, a retired physics professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. In the mid-1950s, two theoretical physicists, Sung Dao Li and Chen Ning Yang, approached Wu to help disprove the law of parity. The law holds that in quantum mechanics, two physical systems, like atoms, that were mirror images, would behave in identical ways. Wu's experiments using cobalt-60, a radioactive form of the cobalt metal, upended this law, which had been accepted for 30 years. This milestone in physics led to a 1957 Nobel Prize for Yang and Li, but not for Wu, who was left out despite her critical role. People found the Nobel decision outrageous, said Byers. Panina Abia-Arm, an historian of science at Brandeis University, agreed, adding that ethnicity also played a role. Wu died of a stroke in 1997 in New York. Lisa Meitner Born in Vienna, Austria in 1878, Lisa Meitner's work in nuclear physics led to the discovery of nuclear fission, the fact that atomic nuclei can be split in two. That finding laid the groundwork for the atomic bomb. Her story is a complicated tangle of sexism, politics and ethnicity. After finishing her doctoral degree in physics at the University of Vienna, Meitner moved to Berlin in 1907 and started collaborating with chemist Otto Hahn. They maintained their working relationship for more than 30 years. After the Nazis annexed Austria in March 1938, Meitner, who was Jewish, made her way to Stockholm, Sweden. She continued to work with Hahn, corresponding and meeting secretly in Copenhagen in November of that year. Although Hahn performed the experiments that produced the evidence supporting the idea of nuclear fission, he was unable to come up with an explanation. Meitner and her nephew Otto Frisch came up with the theory. Hahn published their findings without including Meitner as co-author, although several accounts say Meitner understood this omission, giving the situation in Nazi Germany. That's the start of how Meitner got separated from the credit of discovering nuclear fission, said Lewinsheim, who wrote a biography of Meitner. The other contributing factor to the neglect of Meitner's work was her gender. Meitner once wrote to a friend that it was almost a crime to be a woman in Sweden. A researcher on the Nobel Physics Committee actively tried to shut her out. So Hahn alone won the 1944 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his contributions to splitting the atom. Meitner's colleagues at the time, including physicist Niles Bohr, absolutely felt she was instrumental in the discovery of nuclear fission, Syme said. But since her name wasn't on that initial paper with Hahn, and she was left off the Nobel Prize recognising the discovery, over the years she has not been associated with the finding. The nuclear physicist died in 1968 in Cambridge, England. 
Rosalind Franklin. Born in 1920 in London, Rosalind Franklin used X-rays to take a picture of DNA that would change biology. Hers is perhaps one of the most well-known and shameful instances of a researcher being robbed of credit, said Lewin Syme. Franklin graduated with a doctorate in physical chemistry from Cambridge University in 1945. Then she spent three years at an institute in Paris where she learned X-ray diffraction techniques or the ability to determine the molecular structures of crystals. She returned to England in 1951 as a research associate in John Randall's laboratory at King's College in London and soon encountered Morris Wilkins, who was leading his own research group studying the structure of DNA. Franklin and Wilkins worked on separate DNA projects, but by some accounts, Wilkins mistook Franklin's role in Randall's lab as that of an assistant rather than head of her own project. Meanwhile, James Watson and Francis Crick, both at Cambridge University, were also trying to determine the structure of DNA. They communicated with Wilkins, who at some point showed them Franklin's image of DNA, known as Photo 51, without her knowledge. Photo 51 enabled Watson, Crick and Wilkins to deduce the correct structure for DNA, which they published in a series of articles in the journal Nature in April 1953. Franklin also published in the same issue, providing further details on DNA's structure. Franklin's image of the DNA molecule was key to deciphering its structure, but only Watson, Crick and Wilkins received the 1962 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for their work. Franklin died of ovarian cancer in 1958 in London, four years before Watson, Crick and Wilson received the Nobel. Since Nobel Prizes aren't awarded posthumously, we'll never know whether Franklin would have received a share in the prize for her work. And finally, Nettie Stevens. Born in 1861 in Vermont, Nettie Stevens performed studies crucial in determining that an organism's sex was dictated by its chromosomes, rather than environmental or other factors. After receiving her doctorate from Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, Stevens continued at the college as a researcher studying sex determination. By working on mealworms, she was able to deduce that the males produced sperm with X and Y chromosomes, the sex chromosomes, and that females produced reproductive cells with only X chromosomes. This was evidence supporting the theory that sex determination is directed by an organism's genetics. A fellow researcher named Edmund Wilson is said to have done similar work, but came to the same conclusion later than Stevens did. Stevens fell victim to a phenomenon known as the Matilda effect, the repression or denial of the contributions of female researchers to science. Thomas Hunt Morgan, a prominent geneticist at the time, is often credited with discovering the genetic basis for sex determination, said Pomona College's Hoops. He was the first to write a genetics textbook, she noted, and he wanted to magnify his contributions. Textbooks have this terrible tendency to choose the same evidence as other textbooks, she added, 
and so Stephen's name was not associated with the discovery of sex determination. Hoops has no doubt that Morgan was indebted to Stevens. He corresponded with other scientists at the time about his theories, she said. But his letters back and forth with Nettie Stevens were not like that. He was asking her for details of her experiments. When she died of breast cancer in 1912, he wrote about her in science, and he wrote that he thought she didn't have a broad view of science, said Hoops. But that's because... He didn't ask her. The Naked Mole Rat is fleshy, furless, buck-toothed, and brazenly ugly. Yet what these small East African rodents lack in terms of good looks, they make up for with an impressive array of biological quirks. These misnamed mammals are neither moles nor rats, and in terms of their social behaviour, are actually closer to bees, wasps, ants and termites than to other backboned animals. From the www.daminteresting.com website, an article by Matt Castle, The Mole Rat Prophecies. They live in underground cooperative colonies of up to 300 individuals, with a dominant breeding queen and celibate soldier and working castes. Biologists have identified only one other vertebrate, the closely related Damaraland mole rat, that uses this rigid reproductive and social structure. Until the late 1970s, scientists believed that this trait, known as eusociality, was confined to insects. Naked mole rats deploy several impressive feats of physiology including an apparent imperviousness to pain, a casual disregard for low oxygen environments, and resistance to cancer. Indeed, these unsightly creatures both baffle and buttress Darwin's theory of evolution in multiple, remarkable, and apparently self-contradictory ways. Naked mole rats live almost their entire existence in teeming subterranean tunnels, About the size of a large mouse or a small hamster, they are nearly blind and almost completely hairless. They sport prominent incisors that protrude outside their lips, making effective digging tools. Their tubular, wrinkled body is well formed for moving through narrow passages and unlike similarly sized animals, they can scamper backwards just as easily as they can scurry forwards. The social structure of a naked mole rat colony mirrors that of a beehive or ant nest, with a single breeding female at its head. 98% of the members of a colony will be infertile, with between one and three lucky but exhausted males providing sperm for the sex-obsessed queen. 
Initially, zoologists believed that the Queen curtailed unauthorised reproduction in her subjects by chemical methods, using pheromones in her urine to suppress ovulation in subordinate females. Although odours do play an important friend or foe identification role in a mole rat colony, researchers now believe that the Queen maintains her breeding monopoly by more direct means. Physical abuse. The Queen firmly establishes a social hierarchy by head-shubbing and clambering over her subordinates. Junior mole rats respond with a physiological stress reaction that effectively suppresses sperm production or ovulation. Freed of the demands of reproduction, celibate workers can devote their energies to tending to the Queen's young, their siblings, nieces or nephews, or collecting underground plant tubers to feed the rest of the colony. Meanwhile, higher status rodents form a soldier caste that defends the burrow from predatory snakes or foul-smelling foreigner mole rats. When an old queen dies, the female soldiers engage in blind battle. After much headbutting and clambering, a single victor becomes the new queen and the most powerful males become her royal consorts. Then the young queen grows noticeably larger and longer than her workers as the vertebrae in her spine spread to accommodate an almost continuous state of pregnancy. To date, researchers have noted neither flickers of lightning nor a stirring queen soundtrack alongside this surprising physiological process. Relieved of pup care duties by her celibate minions, she can concentrate on breeding rather than nursing. Almost uniquely among mammals, naked mole rat queens can therefore have litter sizes larger than the number of nipples available for suckling. The subterranean environment of a mole rat colony helps to explain some of their other notable physiological adaptations. The air inside a crowded mole rat burrow has stuffily high levels of carbon dioxide and suffocatingly low levels of oxygen. The high ambient carbon dioxide concentration increases acid in the rodent's tissue fluid to levels that would leave most mammals writhing in agony. Researchers discovered that a mutation in a single gene has switched off this response in mole rats, allowing them to adapt to what would otherwise be an extremely uncomfortable environment. And incidentally, giving them a superhero-like resistance to pain. This capability has piqued the interest of medical scientists looking to develop new classes of human painkillers. Naked mole rats' tolerance of low oxygen levels also holds promise for improving human health. In most mammals, brain tissue is very sensitive to low oxygen levels. Yet a mole rat neuron can survive in conditions of oxygen deprivation or hypoxia six times as long as a corresponding mouse neuron, clearly a useful feature in poorly ventilated burrows. Although the mechanisms for this are unclear, it is believed that naked mole rat brain cells retain features of immature but hypoxia-tolerant fetal neurons. Stroke researchers are keen to harness these insights for the treatment of human hypoxic brain injury. Naked mole rats can live up to 30 years, 
which is an astonishing long lifespan for a small rodent, as any hamster or guinea pig enthusiast can attest. Scientists do not fully understand the reasons behind this rodent endurance, although having a low metabolic rate, which may also contribute to their hypoxia tolerance, no doubt helps. In any case, their longevity makes some sense from an evolutionary point of view. Having outsourced reproduction to the queen and her harem, a short lifespan among workers isn't necessary to keep the genetic pool fresh. Task specialisation seems to promote long life, and old age is particularly common among creatures that care for their young communally. These include mole rats, social insects, cave roosting bats and humans, which all live much longer than would be expected on the basis of their body mass alone. Furthermore, over-frequent death becomes inconvenient, wasteful and unsanitary in a crowded burrow. Colony hygiene is paramount when mortality finally asserts itself, and unusually among non-human mammals, naked mole rats will fastidiously bury their dead. Mole rat Methuselahs also benefit from a further biological boon, a resistance to cancer. Despite intense scrutiny, scientists have never seen malignant tumours in living mole rats. All attempts to induce tumour growth in unaltered mole rat tissue have failed, despite repeated exposure of mole rat cells to chemical cocktails of potent cancer-causing mutagens. Early studies indicate that mole rat cells may exhibit a form of early contact inhibition, in which replicating cells recognise their neighbours and cease dividing particularly promptly. This acts as a failsafe to stop potentially cancerous cells from multiplying beyond a critical density. Researchers are uncertain which evolutionary pressures prompted this improvement, but they are keen to find out a way to capitalise on it for humanity. Despite all these super-rodent powers, not everything goes the mole rat's way. Thanks in part to their low metabolic rate, they have lost the almost universal mammalian characteristic of individual thermoregulation and readily catch chills or swoon if temperature in the burrow moves outside a narrow range. When ambient temperature falls towards 15 degrees centigrade, naked mole rats become sluggish and their body fat starts to solidify. Below 15 degrees, they die. Evolutionarily speaking, this reptilian reversion reflects the use it or lose it principle within the constant 29 to 30 degree microclimate of their burrow. Temperature fluxes are minimal and mole rats have no need for energy expensive individual temperature regulation. Leaving their diverse array of unusual physiological features aside, naked mole rats' unorthodox social and reproductive habits pose some difficult questions for scientists. Until the mid-1960s, the existence of social insects such as bees and ants posed a strong challenge to the emerging neo-Darwinian synthesis, which describes the spectacularly neat marriage of Darwin's theory of evolution with the rapidly expanding field of molecular genetics. 
the altruistic behaviour of sterile worker bees, or ants, was puzzling. They sacrificed themselves to defend and feed their colony, but with no hope of passing their genes to the next generation. In 1964, a British biologist named William D. Hamilton formulated a mathematical rule that appeared to resolve the conundrum. Hamilton's rule is a particularly clear expression of a theory known as kin selection, which states that individuals will sacrifice themselves for others, but only to the extent that those others share their genes. The idea is expressed neatly in the words of another 20th century biologist, J.B.S. Haldane. I would lay down my life for two brothers or eight cousins. Although the majority of evolutionary theorists embrace kin selection, some scientists have offered another idea, that animals can undergo natural selection as a group. Group selection theories propose that the same basic evolutionary processes of selection that act on individuals or their genes can also act at higher levels of organisation. In other words, the evolutionary unit of selection may not always be the gene. Individuals, groups of organisms such as bee or mole rat colonies, or even groups composed of different species could potentially undergo selection collectively. Different versions of group selection theory consider selection at these different levels, and the broader term multi-level selection is sometimes used to encompass the full range of possibilities. Such ideas could potentially account for the altruism of social insects and mole rats without needing to invoke kin selection. It is the overall fitness of the group that ultimately determines its survival and transmission of its characteristics to subsequent generations, irrespective of whether individuals within the group share the same genes. In essence, the colony behaves as a single organism from an evolutionary perspective, in much the same way that individual animal cells will readily sacrifice themselves to defend their parent organism. Group selection remains greatly contested among biologists. Many believe that William Hamilton's description of kin selection will prove both necessary and sufficient to explain altruism. A Swiss study published in 2011 appears to support their view. A collection of two centimetre high robots were programmed to seek out coloured discs, which represented an analogue for food. Their randomly configured artificial nervous systems then underwent a simulated form of natural selection, with fitter robots more likely to pass their enhanced disc gathering skills to the next generation. Disc sharing between robots was one of the potential behaviours allowed by the experiment. Over many simulated robotic generations, patterns of food sharing emerged akin to the altruism seen in biological systems. Critically, the strength of this altruistic behaviour varied according to the degree of shared inheritance between robots, exactly as predicted by Hamilton's rule. It is unclear exactly where the decidedly fleshy naked mole rat stands in this controversy. 
Although individuals within a colony are closely related, they do not share genes as tightly as haplodiploid social insects such as bees and wasps, despite showing the same highly developed altruistic behaviour. Whether mole-rat eusociology can be explained solely by current interpretations of kin selection or some yet-to-be-fully-developed form of multi-level selection remains to be seen. Nor is it clear that these ideas are mutually exclusive as they tackle the problem of altruism from very different directions. Either way, the existence of mole-rat's social structure and unique mammalian reproductive specialisation suggests that eusociality reaches much further into the natural world than first believed, whatever the precise evolutionary mechanisms involved. Naked mole rats have nevertheless already made an important contribution to validating the basic tenets of evolution, those that no serious biologist would contest, by being successfully predicted to exist. Although mounds of observational evidence and logic support Darwin's theory of evolution, one nagging question has been its perceived lack of predictive power, often cited as an important feature of any sound scientific theory. An American biologist named Richard Alexander managed to furnish the theory with such predictive proof. Having read William Hamilton's 1964 description of kin selection as an explanation for insect eusociality, he wondered why the phenomenon was not more widespread, particularly among higher vertebrate organisms such as mammals and birds. He believed that subsociality, or the ability to provide parental care, was an essential feature of eusociality. Given that strong parental impulses are common among mammals, it seemed possible, perhaps even likely, that a set of circumstances could exist in which selective pressures would act to promote eusociality. It just needed a sufficiently harsh and appropriately constrained environment. By applying increasing dollops of deductive logic and well-established Darwinian principles, he was able to identify his hypothesized creature's likely location, appearance and behavior. Like larger versions of social insects, Alexander speculated that these eusocial mammals would live in nests that were safe, expandable and close to a localized, easily exploitable supply of food. This suggested an underground colony as the logs or trees favoured by ants and bees would be too small to accommodate large groups of vertebrates. With the search narrowed down to small burrowing mammals, a rodent species seemed likely. He reasoned that cooperative animals would be better able to exploit concentrated food sources such as plant tubers rather than dispersed food sources like the worms favoured by moles and other lone ranger rodents. Such tubers are common in regions with wet dry seasons where plants need a method of storing nutrients and water for use in the dry season. Alexander identified East Africa with its arid scrub and open woodland as a promising area with the right type of habitat, climate and soil to support underground colonies. In such settings, snakes are common predators, 
and so he expected to see a castle of specialised soldier rodents defending the colony, analogous to soldier ants or termites. Alexander presented his description in a series of well-attended lectures in the mid-70s. In 1975, an audience member approached him after the show and asked if he was aware of the early mole rat research being led by a South African named Jennifer Jarvis. He was not. At that time, the mole rats were known as burrowing underground rodents that lived in big groups in East African scrubland that fed on tubers and were predated on by snakes. While Jarvis and others had already realised that there was something decidedly unusual about them, the unique reproductive role of the queen was not recognised, nor was the extreme extent of their division of labour. Indeed, Jarvis had become increasingly puzzled and frustrated that only one female would ever breed in her experimental lab colonies. When Alexander contacted her and explained his hypothesis, she finally understood why. Darwin, Hamilton and Jarvis all played their part in evolving the surprising eusocial answer, and Alexander had successfully predicted a rather unpredictable variety of rodents. While not unique as an example of evolution's predictive power, naked mole rats must rank as one of the most curious. Given their record of scientific surprises to date, it seems quite possible that with further investigation, they may yet offer deeper insights into the exact mechanisms of evolution. In the meantime, it seems equally plausible that the naked mole rats could help a fellow species of African-evolved social mammal discover the secrets of long life, find cures for cancer, protect brains during strokes, resist pain, and at the very least, develop strategies for efficient nipple use. These remarkable rodents are noteworthy for having challenged and stimulated biologists working in almost every field, from biochemical, physiological and behavioural science up to overarching evolutionary theory. These hairless, oddly reproducing outliers stand as one of evolution's most unlikely products. The naked mole rats, that is. Cooking may be more than just a part of your daily routine. It may be what made your brain as powerful as it is. From the smithsonianmag.com website Why Fire Makes Us Human And it's written by Jerry Adler Wherever humans have gone in the world, they have carried with them two things, language and fire. As they travelled through tropical rainforests, they hoarded the precious embers of old fires and sheltered them from downpours. When they settled the barren Arctic, 
they took with them the memory of fire and recreated it in stoneware vessels filled with animal fat. Darwin himself considered these the two most significant achievements of humanity. It is of course impossible to imagine a human society that does not have language. But given the right climate and an adequacy of raw wild food, could there be a primitive tribe that survives without cooking? In fact, no such people have ever been found. Nor will they be, according to a provocative theory by Harvard biologist Richard Wrangham who believes that fire is needed to fuel the organ that made possible all the other products of culture, language included, the human brain. Every animal on earth is constrained by its energy budget. The calories obtained from food will stretch only so far. As for most human beings, most of the time, these calories are burned not at the gym, but invisibly empowering the heart, the digestive system, and especially the brain, in the silent work of moving molecules around within and among its 100 billion cells. A human body at rest devotes roughly one-fifth of its energy to the brain, regardless of whether it is thinking anything useful, or even thinking at all. Thus, the unprecedented increase in brain size that hominids embarked on around 1.8 million years ago had to be paid for with added calories, either taken in or diverted from some other function in the body. Many anthropologists think the key breakthrough was adding meat to the diet. But Rangham and his Harvard colleague Rachel Carmody think that's only a part of what was going on in evolution at the time. What matters, they say, is not just how many calories you can put into your mouth. But what happens to the food once it gets there? How much useful energy does it provide after subtracting the calories spent in chewing, swallowing and digesting? The real breakthrough, they argue, was cooking. Wrangham, who is in his mid-sixties with an unlined face and a modest demeanour, has a fine pedigree as a primatologist, having studied chimpanzees with Jane Goodall at Gombe Stream National Park. In pursuing his research on primate nutrition, he has sampled what wild monkeys and chimpanzees eat, and he finds it, by and large, repellent. The fruit of the Warburgia tree has a hot taste that renders even a single fruit impossibly unpleasant for humans to ingest, he writes from bitter experience. But chimpanzees can eat a pile of these fruit and look eagerly for more. Although he avoids red meat ordinarily, he ate raw goat to prove a theory that chimps combine meat with tree leaves in their mouths to facilitate chewing and swallowing. The leaves, he found, provide traction for the teeth on the slippery, rubbery surface of raw muscle. Food is a subject on which most people have strong opinions, and Wrangham mostly excuses himself from the moral, political and aesthetic debates it provokes. Impeccably lean himself, he acknowledges blandly that some people will gain weight on the same diet that leaves others thin. Life can be unfair, he writes in his 2010 book Catching Fire, and his shrug is almost palpable on the page. He takes no position on the philosophical arguments for and against a raw food diet, except to point out that it can be quite dangerous for young children. For healthy adults, it's a terrific way to lose weight. 
which is in a way his point. Human beings evolve to eat cooked food. It is literally possible to starve to death even while filling one's stomach with raw food. In the wild, people typically survive only a few months without cooking, even if they can obtain meat. Wrangham cites evidence that urban raw foodists, despite year-round access to bananas, nuts and other high-quality agricultural products, as well as juices, blenders and dehydrators, are often underweight. Of course they may consider this desirable, but Wrangham considers it alarming that in one study half the women were malnourished to the point they stopped menstruating. They presumably are eating all they want, and may even be consuming what appears to be an adequate number of calories based on standard USDA tables. There is growing evidence that these overstate, sometimes to a considerable degree, the energy that the body extracts from whole raw foods. Carmody explains that only a fraction of the calories in raw starch and protein are absorbed by the body directly via the small intestine. The remainder passes into the large bowel, where it is broken down by that organ's ravenous population of microbes, which consume the lion's share for themselves. Cooked food, by contrast, is mostly digested by the time it enters the colon. For the same amount of calories ingested, the body gets roughly 30% more energy from cooked oat, wheat or potato starch, as compared to raw, and as much as 78% from the protein in an egg. In Carmody's experiments, animals given cooked food gain more weight than animals fed the same amount of raw food. And once they've been fed on cooked food, mice at least, seem to prefer it. In essence, cooking, including not only heat but also mechanical processes such as chopping and grinding, outsources some of the body's work of digestion so that more energy is extracted from food and less expended in processing it. Cooking breaks down collagen, the connective tissue in meat, and softens the cell walls of plants to release their stores of starch and fat. The calories to fuel the bigger brains of successive species of hominids came at the expense of the energy-intensive tissue in the gut, which was shrinking at the same time. You can actually see how the barrel-shaped trunk of apes morphed into the comparatively narrow-waisted Homo sapiens. Cooking freed up time as well. The great apes spend four to seven hours a day just chewing, not an activity that prioritises the intellect. The trade-off between the gut and the brain is the key insight of the expensive tissue hypothesis proposed by Leslie Aiello and Peter Wheeler in 1995. Wrangham credits this with inspiring his own thinking, except that Aiello and Wheeler identified meat-eating as the driver of human evolution, while Wrangham emphasises cooking. What could be more human, he asks, than the use of fire? Unsurprisingly, Wrangham's theory appeals to people in the food world. I'm persuaded by it, says Michael Pollan, author of Cooked, whose opening chapter is set in the sweltering, greasy cookhouse of a whole hog barbecue joint in North Carolina, which he sets in counterpoint to lunch with Wrangham at the Harvard Faculty Club, where they each ate a salad. Claude Levi-Strauss, Brillet Severin treated cooking as a metaphor for culture, pollen muses. But if Wrangham is right, it's not a metaphor, it's a 
free condition. Wrangham, with his hard-won experience in eating like a chimpanzee, tends to assume that. With some exceptions, such as fruit, cooked food tastes better than raw. But is this an innate mammalian preference, or just a human adaptation? Harold McGee, author of The Definitive on Food and Cooking, thinks there's an inherent appeal in the taste of cooked food, especially so-called Maillard compounds. These are the aromatic products of the reaction of amino acids and carbohydrates in the presence of heat, responsible for the tastes of coffee and bread and the tasty brown crust on a roast. When you cook food, you make its chemical composition more complex, McGee says. What's the most complex natural uncooked food? Fruit, which is produced by plants specifically to appeal to animals. I used to think it would be interesting to know if humans are the only animals that prefer cooked food, and now we're finding out it's a very basic preference. Among Wrangham's professional peers, his theory elicits scepticism, mainly because it implies that fire was mastered around the time Homo erectus appeared, roughly 1.8 million years ago. Until recently, the earliest human hearths were dated to about 250 BC, Last year, however, the discovery of charred bone and primitive stone tools in a cave in South Africa tentatively pushed the time back to roughly one million years ago, closer to what Wrangham's hypothesis demands, but still short. He acknowledges that this is a problem for his theory, but the number of sites dating from that early period is small and the evidence of fire might not have been preserved. Future excavations, he hopes, will settle the issue. In Wrangham's view, fire did much more than put a nice brown crust on a haunch of antelope. Fire detoxifies some foods that are poisonous when eaten raw, and it kills parasites and bacteria. Again, this comes down to the energy budget. Animals eat raw food without getting sick because the digestive and immune systems have evolved the appropriate defences. Presumably, the ancestors of Homo erectus, say Australopithecus, did as well. But anything the body does, even on a molecular level, takes energy. By getting the same results from burning wood, human beings can put those calories to better use in their brains. Fire, by keeping people warm at night, made fur unnecessary. And without fur, hominids could run farther and faster after prey without overheating. Fire brought hominids out of the trees by frightening away nocturnal predators. It enabled Homo erectus to sleep safely on the ground, which was part of the processes by which bipedalism and perhaps mind-expanding dreaming evolved. By bringing people together at one place and time to eat, fire laid the groundwork for pair bonding and indeed for human society. We will now, in the spirit of impartiality, acknowledge all the ways in which cooking is a terrible idea. The demand for firewood has denuded forests. As B. Wilson notes in her new book, Consider the Fork, the average open cooking fire generates as much carbon dioxide as a car. Indoor smoke from cooking causes breathing problems, and heterocyclic amines from grilling or roasting meat are carcinogenic. Who knows how many people are burned or scalded or cut by cooking utensils or die in cooking-related house fires. 
How many valuable nutrients are washed down the sink along with the water in which vegetables were boiled? Cooking has given the world junk food, 17-course tasting menus at restaurants where you have to be a movie star to get a reservation and obnoxious overbearing chefs berating their sous-chefs on reality TV shows. Wouldn't the world be a better place without all that? Raw food advocates are perfectly justified in eating what makes them feel healthy or morally superior. But they make a category error when they presume that what nourished Australopithecus should be good enough for Homo sapiens. We are, of course, animals, but that doesn't mean we have to eat like one. In taming fire, we set off on our own evolutionary path, and there is no turning back. We are the cooking animal. You've probably never used a fountain pen or accidentally spilled a jar of refill ink and ruined your favourite pants. And for that, you have the ballpoint pen to thank. The handy gadget is having its 75th birthday. So go sign away your rights to something to celebrate. I remember when I was at primary school, though, I had to learn to write with a pen and a nib and a little inkwell in the desk where I worked and I wasn't allowed to use one of those fancy ballpoint pens until I almost got into high school. Gee, am I really that old? (laughs) Anyway, from the gizmodo.com, the ballpoint pen turns 75 years old. Back in 1888, a guy by the name of John J. Loud developed the first precursor to the ballpoint pen. But although the idea was sound, the execution just wasn't up to snuff. It worked, but just well enough to write on leather, not paper. And while it was popular with bovine graffiti artists of the day, well, probably, it never really caught on. Then in 1938, 75 years ago, Laszlo Biro and his brother Georgi patented their own more successful model. It used the same ball-in-socket method, but had a thicker ink, which allowed it to handle paper just fine, and avoid the janky pressurised compartments previous models of the pen had relied on. Ballpoints didn't get popular here in the United States until 1950, when Marcel Bick developed his Bick Crystal design, which you can still chew on and shatter in your mouth today. So, happy birthday to the ballpoint pen putting portable ink in your pocket since before you were born. Gee, we must have been slow here in Australia. I went to the school in the 1960s and, like I said, I had to use a pen and nib and ink and wasn't allowed to use the biro until I was towards the end of my primary school days. Oh, never mind. And from the www.livescience.com, an article by Gillian Shah. What ancient Roman concrete 
could teach modern builders. Contemporary concrete is designed to last for about a hundred years. Yet at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea lie the remains of Roman harbours, buildings and other structures that have remained surprisingly intact for almost 2,000 years. What's the secret to their phenomenally durable concrete? The Romans developed a huge harbour infrastructure in the 1st century BC and 1st century AD and they built the harbours so well that they didn't need to keep repairing them, explained Marie Jackson, a researcher at the University of California, Berkeley's Civil and Environmental Engineering Department. Jackson and several of her Berkeley colleagues, led by civil engineering professor Paulo Montiero, recently examined the underwater structures at Pozzuoli, an Italian seaside town on the Bay of Naples. These harbours were in use for centuries, long after the method of their construction was lost with the fall of Rome. The harbours are in still good shape today, considering they've been subject to centuries of salt water and erosion. But apparently, the salt water is part of the reason why Roman concrete lasts so long. Like modern chemists, Roman builders took limestone and burned it to create lime, a key component of mortar. But then Roman builders mixed the lime with volcanic ash from the Gulf of Naples in the Mediterranean Sea and saturated the mixture with salt water. The reaction between volcanic ash, called pozzolan, and the salt water naturally produces a bonding material called calcium aluminium silicate hydrate, or CASH or CASH for short. In a sense, what the Romans were doing is almost working with the saltwater environment to create a material that actually remains durable for about the same time frame as rock, Jackson told Tech News Daily. The structure of cash differs significantly from modern industrial concrete, which lacks aluminium and relies more heavily on silicates. Furthermore, an X-ray analysis of the structures of Pozzuoli revealed that the concrete contains tobamorite, a crystalline material whose structure is considered ideal, meaning that the way its molecules arrange themselves is highly organised and therefore very strong, and which is nowhere to be found in industrial concrete. What's more, the researchers' findings suggest that the Roman method is far greener than current techniques, releasing far less carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Most modern concrete is made from Portland cement, a substance derived from lime that has been baked at approximately 2,600 degrees Fahrenheit. It is because it needs to achieve these high temperatures that the production of Portland cement creates 7% of industry CO2 emissions. The Romans weren't thinking of CO2 when making their cement, but the strength of their concrete is no accident. Several Roman historians mention the recipe in their writings, including Pliny the Elder and Seneca. Some makers of modern concrete have experimented with using volcanic ash as a substitute for Portland cement, but until now, no one knew how long such mixtures could be expected to last. The first thing we need to be looking at is how we can use volcanic rock or volcanic ash to recreate some of the durability and cohesion of the ancient Roman concrete for modern purposes, said Jackson.
The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website and the bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. And I also keep the latest information about my podcasts, what's happening, what's going on, that sort of stuff, on Facebook. And it's www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy, P-A-U-L-R-E-X-Y. And the show notes, of course, are kept at the Origins website, www.origins.info. And to bring the podcast to a close for this week, something from the mentalfloss.com website. An article by Therese O'Neill. Advice for daughters from dads of yore. Experts of yesteryear weren't shy about advising women on how to be good mothers. But the same can't be said about advice from fathers. It appears there was little market for instructing men how to nurture, provide for or discipline their children. Who would dare to instruct a king on how to rule his own subjects? But there are plenty of books where fathers advise their children. The advice directed from fathers to sons was rather dull and straightforward. Stay clean, don't spend money, read Horace in Latin. But not so for their daughters. For the most part, when fathers of generations past wrote advice to their daughters, that advice was horrifying. Fathers filled pages with doom and shame, threats against their daughters' very lives and sanity, should the girls stray. Sick, simpering and stupid equals sexy. John Gregory wrote a father's legacy to his daughters in 1821. Gregory found human women gross. He really preferred the ones in paintings and poems. He advised his daughters to banish almost every natural human instinct and behaviour they possessed in an effort to reach true femininity. After telling them never to join in men's conversation, but listen with placid detachment, he warned against intelligence. Be even cautious in displaying your good sense. It will be thought you assume superiority over the rest of the company. But if you happen to have any learning, keep it a profound secret, especially from the men who generally look with a jealous and malignant eye on a woman of great parts and a cultivated understanding. Understand, darling, boys don't make passes at girls in trigonometry classes. Gregory approved of physical health and outdoor exercise for his daughters, but for God's sake, don't tell anyone about it. Enjoy your health in grateful silence. We so naturally associate the idea of female softness and delicacy with the correspondent delicacy of constitution, that when a woman speaks of her great strength, her extraordinary appetite, her ability to bear excessive fatigue, we recoil at the description in a way she is little aware of. We recoil. Healthy women disgust any decent man. Sex turns ladies into crazies. Isaac Gomez, writing a hundred years later in 1920, took a more gentle approach. He copied bits of great literature that he thought would help his daughters comport herself properly. 
he devoted five pages of poetry to the preservation of his daughter's virginity and the despair that would befall her if she misplaced it. One of his quoted poems, entitled Maniac, describes a woman gone insane from having sex before marriage and does it with surprisingly few vowels. See yon poor maniac, shirving in her cell, with her hair dishevelled and with bosom bare, once blessed with innocence, the hours rolled on in glad succession. Her cultured mind was calm and mild as summer evenings are, till in her soul convulsing passions strove and raised a dark and wild tornado there. And so on until she falls down the void of madness and death, which we all agree is pretty much what the tart deserved. I will say that in Gomez's five page of Hyman praise, I've never seen a woman referred to as a fruit so many times or so colourfully. It was great when they were budding or blooming, but then they got despoiled or plucked becoming a wreck of maidenhood. Nobody wants a girl after someone else has plucked her. Gregory weighs in on the subject too, but his rules are stricter. When a girl ceases to blush... She has lost the most powerful charm of her beauty. Why a woman should blush when she is conscious of no crime? It is sufficient to answer nature has made you to blush when you are guilty of no fault and has forced us to love you because you do so. Hmm, I just made an oblique reference to flowers having stamens. This 44-year-old mother of six isn't blushing. What a worthless, debauched hag. God, how I hate her. More and better stuff. Not all old school dads were so conservative. As early as 1913, there were signs of fathers starting to believe that their daughters were people. Charles Thwing wrote a whole volume to his daughter, just about her entrance to college. College? I mean, she still wasn't a boy or anything, as he seems to be reminding her in this passage. Your father may wish you had more and better stuff in you, But you are what you are, and education must educate that individual and that individuality which nature out of all her material made you. More and better stuff. Like a penis. That's why he had to send her to an all-girls college. He explains it with a great mincing of words. There are for some girls so many problems so hard that they are not able to see through them or think through them or even feel their way into or through them. But the bottom line being, boys will twitterpate the downy softness of your woman brain and it's already delicate enough, darling. You are now old enough to know your own mind. What a relief it was to stumble on Henry Kitt, writing to his daughter Emily in 1809. It was the oldest volume I read, but the most frank and progressive. Marriage was what a girl did with her future in 1809, and that's just the way it was. But Kett did not regard his daughter a helpless, perpetual child. He wanted her to take a hand in her own happiness. You can almost hear a modern father's bark of, Use your damn brain, through the spaces in his very long run-on sentences. If you were to be betrayed into a matrimonial engagement by a gay admirer who is indebted to his dancing master, 
his tailor and his coachmaker for his attractions, and were to be induced by a few flattering speeches and his stylish appearance to listen to his proposals, you could not have extreme youth nor perfect ignorance of the world to plead your excuse. You are now old enough to know your own mind. You have the advantage of being introduced into genteel company and have daily opportunities of exercising your judgment upon the behaviour and characters of gentlemen. That means I raised you to know a dumbass when you see one. No excuses. If you marry a... Ket gets even more explicit in his marital advice to Emily, using terms that probably weren't politically correct even in his day, a time when the slave trade thrived and people threw their poop into the streets. Number one, if you marry a fool under the delusion that you'll be able to manage him, you may be the victim of your own schemes, for fools are obstinate, and your supposed idiot may put those fetters upon you which you intended for him. In other words, idiots bring you down to their level. Number two, if you marry a rake from the flattering supposition that you shall be able to effect his reformation, you may bitterly repent of having miscalculated the power of your attractions and may die of jealousy and despair. In other words, you think your love will change him? Good luck with that, sunshine. Number three, if you marry a merely rich man, you may indeed gain splendid furniture and gaudy equipages. But you may find too late that a house at the west end of town and a box at the opera are no cures for disappointment. In other words, diamonds don't ask you how your mammogram went. Number four, if you throw yourself away upon a pauper, he may add ingratitude to ambition He may disgrace both you and your family. His vulgarity may shock, and his insolence may terrify you. In other words, a lazy bum at rest tends to stay at rest, except when getting drunk and embarrassing you at barbecues. Number five. If you marry a rich old man, the world will say that you act from mercenary motives and are only thinking of a large jointure, and the handsome figure you will soon make in widow's weeds. Number six. If you marry an invalid, you must make up your mind to pass many hours in a sick room and to perform the offices of a nurse. In other words, love can't heal all wounds. Don't be a martyr. Harsh, but so familiar to what our fathers have said to us in the privacy of our own homes, in the most unguarded moments. Don't let that temporary flush of infatuation blind you and bind you. Make smart choices. To be the best stupid virgin. It's very important to remember when reading these outdated offerings of wisdom that these fathers weren't lunatics or tyrants. They just wanted a good life for their daughters. The best life. They lived in a society where silent, stupid, sickly virgins were the most highly valued, and, well, they wanted their daughters to be valuable. 
These pages of advice, however disturbing to our minds, were meant to impart the tools necessary to navigate their world smoothly and successfully. Back then, that entailed behaving in such a way as to have the finest pick of husbands and friends. Today, it may mean teaching her to question authority, making sure she can do basic self-defence and change her own tyres. But whatever the century, whatever the method, good dads have always done the same thing. Encourage, protect and try to teach their children to choose happiness. Well, everyone, it was a long time coming, but I finally got to the end of episode 144 of the Origins podcast, Why Fire Makes Us Human. So until next time, everyone, whether it be Mysteries Abound or another Origins podcast, this is Paul saying bye for now and keep well, everyone. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.